Bonjour, ni hao, como estas? Welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. Just before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to some of my friends, Yaniv and Chris, who also have another podcast called The Startup Podcast. What I really enjoyed about it is they've been there, done that. And they've worked for Google, small startups, billion dollar unicorns. So if you're in the startup game, scale up game, or the tech industry, and you want to cut through all the folly that everyone talks about, I highly recommend you give a listen to one of the episodes. So if you have a chance, just Google and search for Chris and Yaniv, Y-A-N-I-V, and their podcast, The Startup Podcast. Great products sell themselves, and advertising is just the price you pay for a poor product, right? Well, there's a half-truth to these statements. Right now, budgets are getting crimped, and the heat is on for high cash burn marketing. And there's nothing higher cash burn than media advertising. So how do you grow a brand and sell your product without advertising? One of the most powerful growth drivers is word of mouth. We all know it. It's especially critical for higher involvement and more complex, higher priced products and services. There's lots of products that we don't exactly purchase straight after seeing a few Facebook or Google ads, especially if your brand is less known. Now, word of mouth hits to the core of what great marketing really is underneath. In fact, it's just a great barometer of organic growth and product market fit. But is it fixed? Is it just the result of upstream activity? Can we use it as a growth channel? And is there even a playbook to make it work? Well, today we're finding out. Ted Wright, former Booz Allen consultant, ex-Delta Airlines global brand manager, lecturer at Wharton, and founder, CEO of word of mouth marketing agency, Fizz. It seems Ted is no stranger to tasty beverages, especially wines too, so that's perfect. And in this episode, you're gonna learn how important it is to go back to the basics. Understand your core offering. Identify those who are most likely to recommend your product to others. And then put in place a program to enhance this natural process. But there's three factors necessary before this holy grail of marketing will present itself. And there's three product categories where it's almost impossible. Find out why New Zealand Sav Blanc became something from nothing. Which two simple Viagra ads originally catapulted the drug into popular culture? What's the difference between referrals, advocates, superfans, and influencers? Why do brands who pay Kim Kardashian for social exposure pretty much never use her again? Why should you follow Stakeums on social media? And finally, find out why word of mouth is this podcast's most powerful growth channel. All of these questions and more will be answered in this interview. Just remember to tell at least one other person about this episode or Ted's gonna mark me down, okay? Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Wright. Okay, yeah, so I'll, I'll undo my foil here. My foil was very thick and difficult to take off. And yeah, look, it's funny. The, the, the foil on these these bottles is there, but it doesn't really have any use anymore. It was to stop these mites from eating the cork called cork mites. And that's why it's on there, to stop these little vermin from disintegrating or eating the wood. But it doesn't really serve any purpose now except for aesthetics. That I did not know. Okay, so uh, you ready? One, two, three. three. Okay, so here you go. I'll pour a little glass. Cheers! Okay, cheers. Clink, clink, clink. Mm. Huzzah. Oh, yeah, that's good. Today, we are drinking Laurent Berrier Rosé, and it's quite yummy. Mm, very nice. 
I give it three yummies. So there's only really two ways to make rosé, by the way. Okay. And uh, they have like really different names. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but probably may help them to decide which rosé they like. And look, most rosé is made by taking white wine and putting some some red wine into it. It's called assemblage in French. And that basically means to assemble, or in this case, mix two things together, which is the red and the white wine. And uh, look, this is like a, a lower risk way of making rosé. And you can't get the flavor that you want wrong because you've already made the two wines you're just sort of back blending for a flavor after that so you can do this on a small scale and then until you get the taste you want and then uh, do it on mass with hundreds of thousands of liters of wine which is why most winemakers do it this way because it's okay it's lower risk uh, the more risky way to do it is to use a method called sanier and uh, to, okay. loosely translated this means bleeding in french and that's when you put the red skins in contact with the rest of the white juice for a short period of time uh, as you're fermenting and it sort of bleeds both the the color and the associated more complexity of the skin flavors into this light colored wine. Right. And then you discard the skins after a couple of hours, maybe an hour or a couple, and let the wine do the rest of its thing. And this allows you to get, a, obviously, a more complex rosé uh, that's probably pretty dark, but the problem is you, you it can go really bad. Uh, it can go bitter or, you know, certain flavors can be too or not enough dominant. And then tannins or that, you know, that, chalkiness sometimes yes. the bitterness that you find around the outside of your mouth uh, becomes too dominant and and sometimes it doesn't age well which is why a lot of them don't do it but um so the best rosé champagnes that i've had are, are of this later method the sanier method um which is just the complexity is unrivaled uh long story short in champagne most rosés assemblage and, and this is one example this laurent perrier rosé uh, it's a really really nice wine done well uh, by a big producer but it's um, it's funny that uh, a lot of people aren't aware that you know two out of the three major grapes in Champagne are both red, and there's officially seven uh, different grapes that are allowed in Champagne. Don't make me quote them off the top of my head. But the three major ones are, are Pinot Noir, which is a red grape, uh, Pinot Meunier, which is a red grape, and Chardonnay, which is a white grape. Um, so yeah, just tell me why did you uh, pick this one? Oh, because I had it. It was a gift from a friend of mine. I think I, we let him stay at the house, and so we found this in our in our wine cellar afterwards. And I called him. I'm like, dude, did you leave something? I was like, I left two things. You got to find them both. And I was like, okay. And my wife was like, oh, let's open that one. So we picked this one. We picked, uh, and also, if you'll remember, we also picked this because you could get a bottle. So we could be drinking the same thing. Uh, so yeah, look, I really like this. I, I found a bottle of this, an old bottle that was actually in a, like a bargain bin of a supermarket. And uh, the extra aging the bottle made it taste amazing. Yes. So one of my hacks to you is if you hold on to that bottle, if you've got another one, for maybe, maybe three to five years, you get a really, really quite rich and tastier champagne than uh, maybe a younger bottle. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I will buy some and lay some down. I'm pretty good about leaving wine for multiple years and then finding it. Oh, wow, look at this. Let's see if it's still any good. So, Ted, just quickly, um, just maybe a really quick one-minute summary of your career so far and sort of you know where you started and, and where you're going now. Um, so 20 years ago, I started the world's first word-of-mouth marketing company. And we are now worldwide and work in 17 time zones around the world. And we are the leading authority for 
Word of mouth marketing. Nice, simple and concise. I love it. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you today about word of mouth, because people say that it's not really a channel. And some people say it's just the outcome of everything else. And I thought it'd be really good to hit on some of these myths on the head and, and get your take on this topic, given you're an expert in this area. But first of all, what is word of mouth marketing? So word of mouth marketing is basically the organizing of making sure that two people who know each other has a, have as many opportunities to talk about your brand's product or services as possible. So it's, it's oftentimes it's, it's organizing things that are already there and making sure that the people that really enjoy telling your stories have as many opportunities to share all the different facets of what makes your product or service awesome. Okay, I love it. And some people say, look, this is just the result of all the other marketing, advertising and salesmanship, you know, the product, et cetera. Uh, so what's your response to that? My response is, hey, old man, time for you to retire. And I think my response is, is in the more, more loving sense, is that could be true, right? I mean, engineers love to say, it is the product that sells itself. Hello, Elon Musk. Yes, um, I see you want to get everybody to use electric cars. Oh, why, yes, I would, Ted. Okay, how are you going to do that? I'm going to use word of mouth and make a really good product. Right. So let's just take Elon and let's leave all the I'm going to smoke pot on the Internet and I'm going to go by Twitter and all the rest. Of it. But so here comes Elon Musk and he says, I made some money from PayPal and I think I'm smarter than everybody else. And so I'm going to go in and do something that nobody's been able to do ever in the history of cars, which is I'm going to make an electric car that people want to buy. And so he goes out and he makes a good initial stab at the product. It's fun. Uh, then when the very first two-door uh, Tesla came out, my son was probably like four months old, five months old, and I put him in his little bassinet, and I put him in my car, and we drove like 40 miles to go see one of these things. It was great, and it was basically a Lotus with a, with a different engine in it, and now he makes lots of cars and sells them all around the world and is the world's leader in electric cars, and how did he get that way? One, he did a killer product. And two, he realized in the very, from the very beginning that all the brochures and all the digital ads and all the TV in the world wasn't going to convince somebody to change their mind about stuff. They needed to be convinced by other people. And so what he did is he went and he bought showrooms that really had a car and four or five people in there. And it was really hard to even find a brochure or anything to take away. But you could stay in there and have as many conversations with those people as possible. And so they told two people and so on and so on. And a couple of people came and bought, you know, people who were seriously about being green or energy efficient or whatever they're about. And the story that they were told matched the experience they had with a car. And they went to their friends and said, oh, my God, dude, check this out. And they did, and some people then went back to the to the to the showrooms because they don't have dealerships; they have showrooms. But they want to show you the car. They want to have a conversation with you about the car. And they told two friends, and so on and so on. And basically, even though we make fun of going on Joe Rogan and smoking pot and talking about stuff, everything he does is about driving conversation about the car or about him. Now, in the last six months, maybe he's gone off on the rails. Maybe he's crazy like a fox, and he's getting us to talk about Tesla even more. But he has a huge waiting list, and he sells as many cars as he can make. And 
everybody seems to think that they're pretty good. So huzzah for him. And he built that entire company off of word of mouth. He's never done an ad. Can you do that though with all products and all markets and all product categories? Like for something that doesn't usually get people talking about you or maybe just a product like, I don't know, toilet paper that you use it every day. It's not something I feel compelled to recommend to other people. Like, does this work for every product category and every maturity of different businesses? So you're asking two different questions. One, can your product be average and be talked about? No. So your product has to have three qualities to it in order to be really good to have a conversation. It has to be authentic, has to be interesting, and it has to be relevant. Or as we like to say at their office, it has to have air. So if it's authentic, interesting, and relevant, people will share the story. Fail on any one of those three, and it won't. So if your product is average, or to use the Yiddish, meh, then no one's ever going to talk about it. And you should definitely be using all the TV advertising as you can, right? Or do, or do direct mail or do whatever else you're going to do. Whatever broadcast format fits your budget and you should do that. But if you're worth talking about and you really are, are a wonderful product, and just so you know, you don't have to be a superior product. You could just be good value for money. Like this beer, I'm invisible beer I'm holding in my hand is not the best beer ever made on planet Earth, but it's a really good beer for two Australian dollars. And if I'm going to go hang out at the beach all day, I would drink, you know, half a dozen of these and that would be great. And I personally don't need something that costs seven Australian dollars because I want to have, and this is good. <coughs> so the story matches the experience. So when you need a good, you know, beer to drink when you're drinking more than 30, you're watching some footy or whatever you're doing, and you're just hanging out with your mates, then that is the thing to have. And that doesn't mean it's the best. It just means it is good. It has got a good story to tell. And you see this all the time. You see this all the time with cars. Not every car has to be fancy and awesome. Some car could be like, you know, for 20,000 Australian dollars, this is a hell of a machine. Gets me back and forth to work. And it, uh, and it doesn't break down. Okay, that's what I need. I mean, think about Honda. When Honda's first got exported out of Japan, that was basically their story. Look, it doesn't break down. It's really, it's a good car. It's basic transportation, but it doesn't break down. And all those people who were tired of having cars in the 70s that broke down all the time, you had to fix them, they went and bought them. And it didn't break down and it ran for years. And people said, what's that? It's like, it's a Honda. I know it's from Japan. Who would have ever thought about great cars from Japan? Who would have thought about great wine from California? Who would have thought about great wine from Australia? Grange is a world-class wine. There's all kinds of great wines coming out of Australia. But in order to get people to talk about it, you had to have good stuff that fit the fit going on. Or since we're talking about wine, you know, Kim Crawford made an entire category out of Sauvignon Blancs out of New Zealand, which nobody had ever come until he and his wife like went to New York and she smokes a lot of cigarettes in bars and drinks martinis. And he talks about Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand. And people are like, where? And they're like, I just taste it. Oh, wow, this is really good. Where'd you say it was from? Oh, New Zealand. Okay, cool. And I'm my name's Kim Crawford and my name's right on the label. So you can just remember it's a dude named Kim. And we don't get a lot of that in America. So here we have your exotic wife who's drinking martinis at the bar and you're talking about this wine and 
it, it matched the story. Now it's a 15, it's a $20 Sauvignon Blanc. Are there better Sauvignon Blancs in the world? There are. But people talked about this one because it they, they were told this story and the story matched the experience. Huzzah. I didn't even know that, but I know that the area gets bigger and bigger each year. Like even the soil sort of degrades as it gets further away from the center point of, of the region of Champagne, by the way, just like Marlborough. Um, you know, the, the center of Champagne is is blocked chalk in, in the soil, which is millions of years old. It comes from an old seabed. Uh, it's just like a solid chalk, like a, the things you used to write on the board underneath like 30 centimeters of soil is just you know, meters of just solid white chalk, which looks really funny if you look at the pictures of a champagne, which show this. Um, but, you know, further away from that center point, there's less and less chalk. It's more sort of rubbly. And then when you get to the further furthest outskirts of the champagne area, which are bleeding in, really into the next yes. wine region of Appalachian, uh, there's just no chalk at all. It's just clay soil with a couple of specks of, of chalk in there. So Okay. So the answer to your question, the first part of your question was, you know, what is it? And the, and the answer is... Um, it is a story that's authentic, interesting, and relevant. So, so can anyone do this? What about different businesses at different maturity levels? Like, obviously, you know, you have products or categories that are new and then they mature. So that is an excellent question. So again, it just matters what is the story and can you deliver against the story? So this is good for startups. This is good for mature brands. This is good for other stuff. There are three categories that are most difficult to do word of mouth marketing. Uh, which are personal finance, death, and erectile dysfunction. And this is because there's very little time, John, when you and I are sitting together watching some footy, where I'm going to go up to you and go, John, you know my junk. It just doesn't, you know. You're going to be like, dude, whatever it is, we're watching ball. We're, we're, you know, we're drinking beer. No. And in the same way, nobody really likes to talk about their death or anybody's death. And then personal finance is very personal. That's why it's called personal finance. You know, you have to be exactly pretty much matched with somebody. You know, you can't talk about your three weeks that you went to Tahiti if your friend makes half the money you make. So you've gotta be careful about how you do things like that. So anything where there's a conversational inhibition or an inhibitor, it's more difficult. It's not that it can't be done. I mean, Viagra was basically built off of two television commercials um, and television programs, and then one guy telling another guy, hey, man, this is what happened. This really affected my life. I took this pill, and I don't have that same problem anymore, and this problem has been bugging me for 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. Well, I'm going to watch some of those commercials. So they were that good. So the first one was um, an American baseball player making a bunch of illusion jokes to having sex. The second one was a U.S. presidential candidate named Bob Dole. And he lost the presidential race to Bill Clinton. And about six months later, he was on TV. And the reason he went that fast was because his doctor had shown him this medicine because he had had this problem ever since he had he'd gotten wounded in the war and it had affected him you could see him he was famous for always holding a pen in his hand yeah that's the guy you're you're seeing the recognition so and he always talked about himself in the third person like and i'm bob dole right okay 
So it also turns out that Bob Dole had an issue and Viagra basically solved that issue. And he was so excited that he called the CEO of the big pharmaceutical company that owns this and says, what can I do to help you? Because this is important for people who have had this problem like I've had for decades. And he's like, well, would you do a TV? And it's just him telling the story. And the reason that's important for our audience to go look at this is he's telling it just like any other advocate would share with their friends. He just happens to be on TV sharing it with everybody. He looks at them and says, hey, I know this about you. I know this about this thing. You should check it out. And here's why. And it worked really great in a TV ad because the average consumer takes about 22 seconds to ingest a message. The average word of mouth conversation, at least here in North America, is 32 seconds long. So he's just, and if you look at the ad, there's no other like background. There's no setup. He just comes on and it's like, I'm Bob Dole. And I'm basically here to talk to you about, you know, my penis that doesn't work. And I took this thing and it does. And it's great. Why that was really great for word of mouth is that no one had ever seen a former U.S. presidential candidate go on TV and talk about his penis. And also, he was very serious. He would just look people right in the face and said, and you could tell, he's like, look, you know, he didn't say this, but look, this is embarrassing, but this has sucked for a really long time, and here's the solution. So I'm going to put all my personal aside, and I'm going to, in a very, you know, giving way, I'm going to just tell you my truth. I'm going to share you in a very intrinsic way. There's no extrinsic value to him. They weren't paying, they didn't pay him any money. He was broadly made fun of in the very beginning, but intrinsically he felt that he needed to share this with these people out there. Yeah, so I love this. I love this. Um, We were just talking about this the other day. There's there's chatter in the certain uh, tech communities around the term the the firm is trying to position themselves around, I think, uh, and it's called dark social. Have you heard of this term before? And, and what do you think of it? Uh, I have no idea what that is. Did they turn the lights up in their office? Oh, it's very dark social. Hey, everybody, look, it's hidden social. It's mysterious social. No, look, look, consultants and client and make a lot of money by taking the same thing that everyone talks about and putting a new label on it and you know, writing a couple articles and maybe getting invited to a conference. And I don't even know who this is. I'm sure they're a wonderful human being and their mother and father love them very much. But I don't have any idea what dark social would mean. I mean, I can imagine a an instance where dark and social would come together, but that's really probably not appropriate for this kind of conversation. Well, I can tell you where the term probably came from. And um, back in Facebook's early days, you could do this post on your wall as a business or a person, and it would be public. Uh, And that's what most of us see. It's a a post that everybody else can see. And then you could also do these, what's called dark posts, they call it, where it just looks like an old post, but it's only seen by people you specifically target via advertising. And this is called dark posting. And I think they've perhaps taken this term, dark posting, with the social chatter on channels like more private communities or communities that are not public, like people in the know, like, 
a revenue collective community like Pavilion or a MarTech community or sales tech community. So it okay. refers to only those people chatting about different brands inside those more smaller micro communities, like a like a kind of like a digital version of speaking to an industry colleague at an event in the lobby of a conference area that only certain people are invited to. Yeah, so you don't get as much scale here as public social media, but obviously some of that trust is quite high because you are with peers who are in the same position as you making the same decisions as you and for that reason i think the argument here is is around dark social is that it's a really good way of seeding word of mouth and referrals that actually lead to sales but for me that's just word of mouth repackaged into a specific context really well so so first of all i think we should all make a game of taking old terms and and discarded technology from facebook and making it into new things like only not you mentioned facebook's wall i'm like what is this 2006 also poking remember you poke somebody remember they had the little hand and you were like and you poked me so i think we should do something with pokes and walls and whatever discounter technology and then i would also say that whoever came up with this idea they're basically describing people that hang out with each other and trust each other and share information amongst each other so as a as a as a marketer, what you should care about is that this happens. You should not care about where it happens. You don't care if somebody makes a TikTok video about how much they love your new avionics package for Boeing or Airbus, right? You don't care if somebody draws a picture, a cartoon of me loving this lovely bottle of champagne. Right. What you care about is somebody loved your champagne or your avionics package so much that they wanted to go out of their way to share the story with other people that they know. Now, where the person got right is so that stories are generally shared between two people who know each other or within a group that knows each other. There's very few people that are out there just standing at the end of the grocery aisle waiting to jump out at you and go, oh, Jeff peanut butter is awesome. You should try this and like sort of leap out. Yeah, I agree because you need, um, there's going to be like a transference of trust and you can't get a transference of trust in someone you don't know or don't trust. Uh, so like uh, a lot of referrals that happen in the medical industry, for example, um, when I was doing a lot of marketing with clinics and dentists and plastic surgeons, uh, it was a very high trust purchase. So people were pretty discerning when it came to who they listened to, when it came to recommendations. Uh, very few people would you know, Google you and then click on your ad to a business they'd never seen before and, and then purchase something. They applied a much higher BS filter on there. So a general practitioner or your doctor or a dentist or something like that, um, if, especially if they're making augmentations to your body, um, sales only really came from personal referrals, right? It, it comes from talking to someone else that goes, oh, where did you get your nose done or, you know, your other things done? Um, or, you know, I need a new dentist. Where did you get your dentist done? Because, you know, I've moved towns or something and I don't have access to that one anymore. And you get this sort of trust transference, right, from the response of that person. So my question to you is like, I understand it works really well for some categories. It's everything. But how do we create that, that word of mouth? Is it possible? Like what's the process? Is that, is it better, for example, than spending $10,000 a month with Facebook or Google or putting ads here or there, which is, you know, a relatively easy playbook to execute. So uh, not only is that an easy playbook, but it's also a worthless playbook. 
please have all of your friends send in all of the data they have that, you know, long-term these digital ads work. Because the problem is that a conversation between two people who know each other is 10 times more trusted and a hundred times more likely to drive trial than that same information that comes over in one of these digital ads that you speak of. And this is because there's just not as much information that's packed in there, right? If you talk in somebody digitally, there's only seven known ways you can communicate with them, including emoticons, punctuation, word choice, bold, there's a couple other things. There's over 400 ways that people communicate to each other when they're face-to-face, -face, including voice timber, face, gesticulation, the moving of hands, what you're wearing, how you're sitting, how you're sitting forward, how you're sitting backward, is your hand, are your arms crossed? So all of these things are tells, all these things are communicate. This is why, yes, exactly. This is why people who are advocates, 70% of their conversations are face-to-face. Only 30% are happen online, right? Because these advocates, this one person in 10 that basically tells the other nine what to do about everything, those people love to share stories with their friends. They're intrinsically motivated and they like to try new things because they're new. So when you know those three things, you're like, okay, how do I set up? And this gets your point about how do you do this? So if you want to try and find advocates, then you should start asking people questions and seeing if they'll come answer you. You should specifically ask them to share a story with you about them tell, talking about your brand to their friends. And advocates will be like, oh, you mean the other day when I told Cindy Lou Who about how awesome this champagne was? And then she went out and bought it for all her friends in tennis and they drank it and they liked it so much, they drank two more bottles. And oh my God, it was so great. And that's so fantastic. And I can't believe that I knew about that. And I told her and I'm very excited. Well, yeah, it reminds me of a lot of what we do in B2B, which is uh, creating referral networks or advocacy networks, right? And coming back to our shared sort of caution of consultants, because they do this really well. Um, a lot of software companies, they become sort of partners with consulting firms who recommend their clients use their software. Example, uh, Salesforce is partnered with all the big consulting companies uh, who then recommend and resell and repackage those products into the solutions they recommend their clients. So this is kind of like trust transference here through a recommendation, but there's really a commercial agreement there, obviously on the back end. So is that this creating partnerships, referral networks, would you call that word of mouth? Because I've done that before and it's really powerful from a growth perspective, but it does take a bit more time and isn't very scalable. So maybe that's the trade-off. So for your audience, what I would say is referral networks deal with somebody's extrinsic values. Like if you refer me to somebody, you will make money, you will get something. Advocates actually don't want anything that's financial from you. What they want is they want information. They want stories because they love like three and a half times more than normal. They love to share stories with their friends. Like this is something that has driven them for 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years of their life before you as a brand ever get to them. So setting up a referral network is basically saying, hey, if you send somebody my way, I will give you something back in return, right? So that's salesmanship, that's just straight on. What we're talking about is advocacy, which is basically saying, regardless of 
if I ever get paid for this, I'm going to tell you, John, about this really great new microphone setup because I know you do a lot of podcasts and I like you as a person. I would like you to be as successful as possible. So let me tell you about this great microphone setup that I know about. Right? The average, those average conversations last 32 seconds. They are 10 times more likely to drive, be trusted, and 100 times more likely to drive sales. Yeah, it's like lower numbers, but more trust transference. So more revenue versus bigger numbers where you play the sort of volume game, but it's diluted on revenue so that there's these polar opposite marketing playbooks there. Okay, so you do this for your agency, Fizz. It's kind of your MO if I had to sum it up. So without giving away too much of your secret sauce, uh, are there stages or a bit of a process that you go through to do this kind of work? Yeah. So by the way, so all you there, there is no, there's the secret sauce. I wrote it all down in a book and, you know, about five years ago and it's sold tens and tens and tens of thousands of copies. So you can buy, one of your friends probably has a copy or you can call Amazon and they'll give you, you know, one for like 20 bucks or whatever. So there are no secrets. What the first thing you need to do as a company is you need to figure out what is your goal. Like, what are we trying to do here? Which is one-on-one, but I'd say like, one client and five of us comes to, we want to be bigger. Like you need to be a little more specific that. The reason you need to be more specific about that is because you've got to come up with a story. And that story is something that is authentic, that is interesting, that is relevant, that people are going to share with each other. Once you come up with an interesting story, you're like, okay, what's my target? Who really cares? And then my best targets are those that co-locate, they gather together either physically, virtually, or both, so they can more easily share information. And that they also have an already pre-existing communication network. Because you as a company don't want to spend a bunch of time creating an app so all your fans will go on and hang on the app. Dude, we got apps. It's called my text chain, or it's called Facebook, or it's called Twitter, or it's called WhatsApp. You don't really care what it is. You care that people use it and that people are compelled and love to share your story. And then finally, so once you have a goal and a target and a story, then you're like, okay, what am I going to do out there, both virtually and physically, that are going to get people to notice me enough to come ask me questions? And you love people to ask you questions because one, they're committing to having an exchange of information with you. And two, they are basically announcing yourself like, look, if you'll tell me stuff, I'll either use that for my own benefit or I'll tell other people. So while one in 10 of the general population is this advocate personality, we find that when people start engaging and asking brands questions, that number drops from one in 10 to one in three. So a third of your people that are coming up to you at a trade show or a fair or a street performance, or coming to you online and asking you questions, are doing so because they want to take that information back to their friends and share it. And they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart because they love to have interactions with their friends three and a half times more than all the rest of us.
Yeah, interesting. So you reminded me of the story like crafting stories. Uh, sometimes the story doesn't have to be true. It just has to be compelling enough. Uh, example on the champagne theme, Dom Perignon, which is it a is. very premium champagne, which is a brand of LVMH, by the way, uh, which you're aware of. Uh, so apparently they have weaved this story that Dom Perignon was this monk back in the day who invented champagne and has been uh, attributed with this quote, uh, come quickly, I'm drinking the stars, right? So if you go to Dom Perignon's uh, cellar door in Champagne, they take you through this whole story. It's everywhere. It's on the walls, on the gate of when you enter this archway through their driveway, you know, there's this quote there and everything. And the whole story is actually factually not supported by any evidence. Um, there are sort of half truths in, in the story that they weave, but like there was this man called Dom Perignon and he was making wine or storing wine uh, in barrels at the time. Uh, and sometimes those barrels exploded because they got fizzy. But the people who actually invented sparkling champagne were winemakers and chemists in England who perfected this this method of adding a bit more sugar and yeast to the bottle to make it fizzy um, and controlling that process rather than uh, it being an after effect of like a fault. So factually incorrect, but compelling, valuable. So let's talk about the difference between truth and authenticity, okay? So truth is the language of lawyers, and authenticity is the language of friends. Some people say truth is the language of politicians. So you're like, so politicians and lawyers will say stuff that is factually true and you cannot come back to it. But then when all the rest of us are listening to it, we're like, mm, I don't know when the guy said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. People are like, um, okay, well, so that's true. But on the preponderance of the evidence, it seems kind of shaky. And so what's interesting is advocates really only share a story that's authentic. And because they find that to be a higher level of truth. So whether or not Dom Perignon himself invented champagne or not back in the 1500s, or whenever he was supposed to do, is kind of irrelevant to the discussion because the origin story is fun and it also has the ring of truth. It has the ring of authenticity. And quite honestly, if you look at inventions, you know, supposedly Marconi invented the radio. So if you look and you look at the patent applications worldwide, there are seven patent applications for what is basically the radio from seven different countries, all in Europe, all within six weeks of each other. So who invented the radio first? I don't know, but some guy named Marconi definitely started the first company and people bought a lot of radios from him and nobody remembers the other six guys that did it at the same time. So does that mean he was, that means it was untrue that he invented? No, it means nobody cares if he invented right? We don't care. We care that the radio works and we care that the, the information comes to us and we care that it's inexpensive or that it was portable eventually, or it ran on batteries or whatever. Those are things we care about. So for all our friends at LVMH and Dom Perignon, they've done a lovely job of making it feel like their champagne is a luxury champagne. So when you give somebody a bottle of Dom, they have a particular feeling that comes over them and they and you as the purchaser think that they are going to have that feeling and therefore they buy. Now, me personally, since we're talking about both champagne and strategy, I don't particularly care for Dom Perignon. I've had it, I, you know, two dozen times in my life. Eh, it's okay. 
And just so you know, I'm the same way about Screaming Eagle red wine. I've had it three times. I don't ever need to have it again. I've had better wine, for sure, for sure. But that doesn't mean it's a bad wine. It just means me, right? I'm actually surprised how much I'm liking this rosé because I don't particularly care for rosé champagnes all the time. But it was a fun bottle, and you had one, and I had one, and we're 5,000, 9,000 miles, 10,000 miles away from each other. So sending each other a bottle yesterday seemed like a bad idea. So, you know, here we go, right? So it's it's fun, and it's good. I'm sure I could wrap that up into a more compelling story for listeners. Oh, for the listeners, as for what, why we chose this rosé champagne? Like you then ventured into your wine cellar at the back and were hunting around in the dark and, you know, knocked something over and, and accidentally found this thing that had, you know, fallen behind the recess in the back of your wine cellar, for example. You know, that, that would be a cool story. So that is a cool story. So why we picked, so for those of you uh, who are listening, still listening, hi, and thank you for sticking around, by the way, because John and I are halfway through each of our bottles and it's like early in the morning for him. So I'm ready to see what the rest of his day is. So for, for us, so I have a very small little wine storage place in my home. So I went in there and, and John was like, Ooh, what's that? And so I'm like, I don't know. I, I got all kinds of stuff in here. And so I start pulling some things. And this is one we pulled uh, because a friend of mine was very gracious and left it for me. And I had some other stuff in there that would have been lovely to try. And John knew about them, but he's like, oh, I can't. Yeah, I don't have any of that in my in my my wine storage, and I don't even know where I would go find one by tomorrow morning. I'm like, okay, well, we don't have to drink that. But John did promise me, and all of the audience and me, we're going to hold you this, John, that he was he had several that I'd never heard of before, and so he's going to make sure that I got one eventually here in the United States. So, or he's going to plane ticket. I'm going to fly down there. I'm going to drink with him. We're still deciding. That's it. Yeah, I love it. So let's let's go with both. Ah, I can do both. I can do both. I've not been. Uh, it's been a minute since I've been to Australia with COVID and all the rest of that. It's so I'd love to get down there um, sooner rather than later. It's always lovely. So with all the conferences starting up again and and talking about stories and recommendations, like a lot of these conferences and and other events for that matter, they're. That's where you sort of hear a lot of these, oh, hey, what are you doing? And which vendor do you use? Or which software do you use? And, you know, at this company, and they go, oh, well, at this company, we, we use this. And all that spontaneous water cooler conversation that happens outside of the official speaking event, that's where I see a lot of this word of mouth happening. Um, but speaking about that, we were talking about metrics and the difference between vanity metrics, like massive reach for a moderate sort of cost per thousand versus perhaps the other end of the scale where there's low reach, like a few personal recommendations, but all of those convert into a sale at a really, really, really high rate. I feel sometimes that there's this preponderance for teams to prefer reporting these larger number metrics that sound really good um, when they're reporting them in, in, in reports to upper management. Um, like, you know, ads were seen by 6,000 people. We got 70,000 engagements on our, on our Facebook ad and 16 comments and, you know, blah, 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 versus measuring, oh, well, what did that actually do? Did all of that result in a sale or not? And if so, how much? So what's your response to this whole bot and fake engagement side of social media and these vanity metrics um, or influencer marketing campaigns versus maybe some more of these authentic recommendations? So for me, there's only one metric that makes a difference and that's sales. Everything else, who cares? 
I literally have zero anything starting with an F to uh, to give about likes or, I mean, I like comments because they're fun because I comment back. A buddy of mine just got, uh, he became the CEO of a, of a large company and they do car wash systems. And I'm like, dude, finally Rose Royce can sing your entry song. And Rose Royce was an American disco band from the 70s. And they have a song that is just talking, working at the car wash. And it's the whole thing. And there's a movie called Car Wash. And it is this whole thing. And he's, so those are fun, right? Now, is that going to lead to another sale? I don't know. You know, is it is it worth it? But we're having a relationship. Because eventually people will be like, oh, that's that word of mouth guy who's always writing funny, witty things, supposedly. People have told me that I'm not calling it myself on LinkedIn. And so I should call him because, you know, I think we want to sell more stuff. And he seems to be able to say stuff in a way that makes people think that I can sell more things. And I'm like, okay, so let's go do things. So metrics or social media have to be related back to sales. If not, you're just doing art. And some stuff, it, it takes a minute to get there. So in the United States, there is a, there is a brand called Steakums. And Steakums are very thinly sliced beef that is frozen. And you're, you put it in a pan and it takes like 30 seconds and cooks and it's great. So when the social media channel for Steakums opened up, they were like, um... What are you going to talk about? Like, I just told you the whole Steakum story. Like, it's really great. It goes in a pan and fries in 30 seconds. So they decided that they would hire this person who's like really wicked smart. And he writes these long, philosophically interesting posts about just things. And he has hundreds of thousands of followers. And Steakums knows for a fact that they sell more Steakums now than they used to when he started doing all these posts. So they're like, okay, keep doing that. Now, what is the difference between, so he did a really great post, series of posts the other day on what is the definition of listening? And it was like really interesting. It's like, I hadn't really thought about a couple of things that he brought up and, you know, he brings in other people and he brings in, there's a study about listening and study about auditory hearing. Um, the, just as a, Random fact here in the United States, um, the number of visits to audiologists increased almost 40% in the United States during COVID. People thought they were losing their hair. The problem was everyone was wearing a mask. And it turns out that we get a lot of our information from watching somebody's lips. So if you speak whatever language you're speaking after you know decades of doing that, you can watch people say things. And so you get like a lot of your hearing comes from watching somebody's lips. And so these audiologists where there's nothing wrong with your hearing. One, people are muffled because of the mask, but two, it's because you can't see their lips. And there are some clues and what it's saying. So for fun, next time everyone's listening to this, when you're watching a TV show, like turn away and listen to it and then turn back and watch it while you're listening. You're like, oh my gosh, I hear so much better when I can see it. So that's interesting stuff. So he was doing all this stuff. Now, does it make me buy more Steakums than I already would? No, 
but does it get me thinking about them? So when my son says, oh, dad, we should have cheesesteaks for dinner. I was like, well, let's go buy some steakums. And I made cheesesteaks for us. And I'm positive that's the first time that I've made cheesesteaks in a decade. And I would have never thought about steakums unless I was watching the social media stuff about that was interesting. Isn't that funny? It's kind of like using the inversion technique here, which is, you know, the steak that's thin and quick and fast to fry versus long philosophical posts on social media. Like it's this complete opposite almost of their brand. And maybe that's why it's so powerful because it's like some things need to take time and others, well, we want them quickly. John, you might be smarter than anybody else I've ever met because I've never heard anybody come up with that thought. Like that they actually diabolically thought about the juxtaposition between very long form and be very short cooking. And I said, aha, so if you see six Steakum Ninja come visit you in Australia and they're like, hiya, and they're trying to end you, you'll know you were on the right way. Okay, so we're sort of talking a bit about social here, which is when people use word of mouth via social interaction between two people on a social media platform. And before social media, it used to be, you know, conversations over the back fence, like, or on the front porch with your neighbors going past. And you were like, you saw something in their backyard and like, hey, where'd you get that car from? Or ha! where'd you get that lawnmower from? And and that's, I think, sort of shifted a bit online and you've got these communities and influencers. And, and so like, what's the difference? Because a lot of people are spending money on these social media influencer campaigns. But by my experience, you've got to be really careful. There's like a, there's like a lot of nuance in selecting the right people and crafting that offer. And sometimes the people with the, the most followers and the most average reach per share um, have the least power of persuasion when affecting their followers. Uh, like they're just people who follow other people for whatever reason, but don't really trust their recommendations when it comes to you know, buying something. Um, so there's not much transference there of actual influence underneath. So where do influencers sit in this whole mix? Are they advocates? Um, are they influencers? Um, how do we do it properly? So if you live in Australia, how you do it properly is you call my friend Sharon at a company called Social Soup, and she is fantastic at the influencer thing. Um, if you don't want to call Sharon, you just want to do it yourself. Um, personally, I wouldn't. Okay. Cause unless you are really interested in kind of the celebrity game. And remember when I say celebrity, I'm not talking about somebody who has hundreds of thousands of followers. So at this point, everybody on planet earth is famous to somebody. I believe I'm famous to seven people. My wife and my son would be the top two. And I think there's five other people I'm, quote, famous to. Some people might say it's as many as it's 10. There are some people that are famous to hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Sometimes those people can get everybody to do something. Most of the time they can't. The average number of times that Kim Kardashian gets invited back to, to do another series of posts is very, 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 very small like starting to approach zero, right? Which is why she bailed and did her own project. She's like, ah, I can take all this and I can do my own thing and I can tell people a story about a thing and I can make sure that that story matches the experience because I'm making my own shapewear. Thus, whatever the name of her shapewear line is and it's, you know, significantly large at this point and grew really fast and good for her. I want everybody to be rich and famous and skinny 
if they want to be or fat if they want to be and successful and huzzah for everybody. So if it was me, I would never put my money into influencers because you cannot really control what's going on. And what if they just decide to be like the guy who thought it would be funny to go make suicide jokes in Japan and just angered an entire nation. And you're like, um, um, we didn't put in the contract that he can't make suicide jokes in Japan and talk about hanging yourself in a forest or whatever he did. And so now, you know, nobody in our Joe in Japan wants to buy our stuff and we have to go apologize and do sales and do all the rest of this stuff. So what you've got with influencers is you've got people that are trying to be famous and that's their goal. So I would rather work with people that love my product or service, whatever that was. And I would like to spend that same effort that I'm doing with influencers. I would like to spend that effort making sure that all those people knew everything about my company, my product or service that I knew about. So in our office, we always joke that if Every CMO in America knew as much about what we do at Fizz as we do. We would never be without work. And so that's been our goal for the last 20 years, just make sure that everybody knows as much as we do. And we haven't been without work for 18 years. So I think it's interesting to me because if I was ever, you know, consulting someone, they wouldn't think of word of mouth as a channel per se, or say, hey, let's hire a word of mouth agency or, or even consider it as a channel. Uh, it's always like they've heard of Facebook, let's do Facebook or let's do this channel, which everyone else is using, or let's do something that I've heard of in a webinar or a conference or, you know, in, in the, the halls of, um, of listening around the water cooler. So what do you think are the biggest myths here or misconceptions around what you do that we can just bust out of the gate right now? Um, I don't know if I want to bust anything. I think I would encourage people if they thought the data was interesting and thought the conversation was interesting, um, you know, they should go do some Googling on word of mouth marketing and, I think what you'll find is you'll find that this is organizing something that's very powerful that already exists, but it just, so, right. So conversation is, are like the ba the waves that hit beyond the beach all day, every day for millennia. That's conversation. Word of mouth is organizing all of that energy and directing it in a particular way. And if you can organize that in a particular way, you can carve granite using soft water. I mean, you can do amazing things that are permanent, that are forever. And then for all my friends out there that are P&L responsible, you also get some really sexy numbers going on because most of the cost in broadcast is buying access to your network. With word of mouth, you earn access to your network. So you need to make a better rosé champagne, a better car, a better whatever. And if you do that and you share the story and people actually care that you made that thing better, then they will show up and they will try your thing. And 10% of those people will go to all their friends who potentially could love your thing and say, oh my goodness, y'all. If they're from the south part of Australia, they'll say y'all. If they're from the northern part, I don't know. They'll say, oh my goodness, y'all, we come follow me and over to this thing and try it because this is why. 
and they'll be like, huh, I know Ted. I know he knows a lot about this. I'm interested in this. I'll go check it out. And then for those of you who are listening or watching, if it costs less than 50 Australian dollars, people will just go buy it on just straight recommendation. If it costs between 50 and 500 Australian dollars, they'll go to their phone and they'll say, huh, Ted said that fancy sushi restaurant was really good, but it's going to be like $200. So let me just go up here and look and just see if that's going to be the place for the anniversary. So I go read all my digital references and recommendations, right? And so that is where digital and word of mouth, you get one plus one is three. Over $500, all the way to infinity dollars. Like, which neighborhood should I? I'm moving to Sydney which from the United States. Which neighborhood should I live in? So just because, you know, my friend David used to live on Beyondy Beach does not mean that I'm going to be like, well, David lived there and let me just rent an apartment there, right? Because he didn't have kids and I have kids. And so I've got to go. So what I do is I take all that information that I got from David my word of mouth connection for living in Australia. I take all the information I got from looking at all the online sources and I take that to an entirely separate group of people who know about this and I say, hey, I heard this about this, this, and this. What do you all think? And then whatever comes out of that, that is the truth and that is the actionable thing and that's what I work. So that's how this whole word of yeah, so look, I get it. But also, we are going to finance asking for a budget. And they're always going to want the business case. Example, if I give you this money for word of mouth campaign, how are you going to measure it? And a lot of the word of mouth happens because it, it happens in channels that you can't really measure or it's inherently unmeasurable, right? So how do you justify that? Ah, wait, 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 everybody. I'm stopping John. I'm stopping John. Ah, I'm stopping John. John is not that you can't measure it, it's it's difficult to measure. It is more difficult to measure. So look, if you wanna stick your little counter on top of somebody's API stream, that we know, we know for a fact that 25 to 80% of all of that data in the stream is fake. It's bots, it's BS, it's whatever. So whatever, you read the Wall Street Journal, you read the AMA, you read, you know, Musk trying to get out of the deal with with uh, everybody. You read Scott Galloway. You leave. What's that awesome uh, business school professor who's Australian who now lives in Tasmania and like yells at people for fun? Whatever that guy's name is. Yes, Mark Ritson. Hi, Mark, if you're listening. Look at what they say about this stuff. So if you want to count a bunch of garbage, feel free. Just because it's easy. And Einstein said this when he was talking about dark matter. Sometimes the easiest things to measure are the least important. And sometimes the hardest thing to measure are the most important. So just because it's not easy does not mean you shouldn't do it. Particularly if it's your job or particularly if you can lose your job because goodness, or if you're doing a startup. Now I'm listening. Now I'm specifically talking to everybody who has a startup. You went and borrowed money from your parents from your aunt and uncle who have a sheep farm, whatever, and definitely cannot afford to lose the 20,000 Australian dollars that they loaned you. You're gonna take their money and you're gonna bet 
on a system of social media that you know is at least 20% fake. That's what you're going to build your reputation on. Because you're, you, want to, you really want to go to Sunday dinner in two years and explain to everybody why you lost their money. Or you want to do the hard work, but the permanent work, right? It is, it is slow and steady wins the race. It is not as easy as I'm just going to do some ads and throw them up there. You've got to convince people. You've got to tell two people. They've got to tell two people. You've got to make sure they're saying the right thing. You've got to do all the work, but then it's permanent. Look at every, and just for all my Australian friends, look at every surf brand that has ever come out of Australia. And they've gone to be globally dominant. Why? Because some person on some beach somewhere had a better idea and they tried it out and they told their friends and they told everybody else. And all of a sudden the cool people were doing it. And everybody like me who wishes they were cool, but is not, is like, oh, I'll wear your shirt because then I'll be like the cool people. Or I'll wear your board shorts. And they tell two friends and so on and so on. And all of a sudden we're drinking Australian red wine. And we're wearing your cool, whatever the cool Australian board short brand is of the day. And they're not digital ads. And it's not magazines. It's one person telling another, hey, you need, I know this about you. I know this about this thing. You should check it out. And here's why. And that is marketing. So it's funny. I was just having this conversation yesterday uh, about attribution with somebody. And it was like, I've got all these channel investments, this and this and this and this and this. And our MTA or multi-touch attribution is saying, you know, 20% is coming from here and, you know, blah, 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 blah. All these, you know, Bayesian regressions used to attribute all these different sources in a complex MMM model. And I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. But have you actually asked each customer or a sample of customers when you're on board or, or when they become customers, you know, like, how did you find out about us? And it's funny when you do that and you get the results, it's completely different to whatever a lot of these marketing channels or regression analyses are telling you. And when you interview or survey them, which I admit has its own sort of set of faults, so it has to be done carefully, you know, they'll say something like, oh, I found out about your brand when I had this problem. And then I talked to a person, they said, hey, you should go and check you know, this person or this brand out. Or they say something like, oh, well, I saw it here in use or someone else was using it or it was at a party and, you know, I thought I'd give it a try. And that's basically like 90% of the attribution when you actually ask the people buying your product, which is a complete odds to a lot of these other reports or things your marketing department or other vendors that they use will, will show you. Yes. So especially, and this is for all my friends who are selling high dollar things now, and hopefully the startups are doing that too. When you ask your people how they came there, 60, 70% of the top box is conversation with my friend. Because they literally don't care about your brochure. And they don't care about your free geek odd that you're giving away at a trade show. And because of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Acts and all the other ones that are out there, you can't do the bribery thing like you used to be able to do in the 70s and 80s. So you have to earn... You have to earn your stripes. So, and for measurement, pitch. I talked about my friend Sharon uh, with Social Soup. So there's another guy out there. When you talk about measurement and attribution for word of mouth, 
the best guy in the world, the guy that we use all the time, is a guy named Ed Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. You should look him up. Uh, while we might have been the first word of mouth agency out there doing it, we're about four years earlier into the space than Ed was. Ed is the king of measurement. He is the king of measurement. He is the best person in the world. I love it. Okay. Check him out. Okay, great. I'm definitely going to do that. And you're obviously seeing some changes in the industry, that's, uh, which is really good. And I think we've hit on some really key things here, which, you know, the current environment for a lot of startups is contraction and they're going, I need to limit my cash burn. And the first place they look often is, is not in engineering or product. It's in the sales and marketing departments, which is somewhat ironic. But anyway, some of these departments attract a lot of high cash burn. And um, obviously when you're going down the line items, it's going to attract the CFO. It's just the nature of the beast. So, you know, finance is going to consider turning those off or reducing them. Um, so there's this rebalancing going on right now with the lower budgets and lower sales coming in and where people are sort of retracting back to their core revenue generation sources um, that are more safer bets and and working on those instead. And a lot of the startup world, they, they sort of regress into this PLG or product-led growth mantra where they get enamored with this allure of this fantasy and this buzzword of, you know, we'll just get the product right and we'll just sell like hotcakes, which has some merit, but it's often misinterpreted. And I think looking hard at what is the value in your product and getting that right at the core level and then following that all the way along i mean that's really hard stuff you've got to listen to custom interviews you've got to do research you've got to tweak the onboarding processes do all these tests and all these kind of things which is why going through this process can be so powerful because it's inherently unscalable and people can't be bothered doing it a lot of the time uh, but when you get it right your customers just go oh wow that was awesome i'm going to tell somebody about it but it's often really hard and resource intensive to get there. Internally resource intensive, maybe not from an external cash burn perspective though. Yes, so if I was an engineer or I was making something at a company or a startup and I would go to my, whoever my marketing counterpart was and I would say, product-led growth, we're definitely doing that. Your job is to take my product and to show it to as many people as about it as possible and talk about it in a way that they really understand why this thing is awesome. And that's it for marketing. That is 100% it. And if you try and do anything else, especially the before you, you know, in the first four years or before you hit 20 million in Australian dollar annual revenue, you are wasting your blessed time. And you're wasting your aunt and uncle at the sheep farm who loaned you the money. You're wasting their money. And then it's going to be hard to go to Sunday dinner. It's going to be hard to watch footy with them on, you know, on a Saturday and watch because you're like, where's my money? Oh, well, I bought a bunch of Facebook ads. It turns out it's like, I, I don't even understand Facebook. I trusted you. All right. I trusted you to do the right thing. The right thing is to have conversations with people and share the story one-on-one -on -one, and they will share it with other people and so on and so on. And then one day, Six or seven years into your business life, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll be like, oh, I just sold something. I, don't, I didn't even have to do any work. One person told another person and then I'm going to get a call tomorrow morning. And you would just feel it in the air. So what about some books that you would recommend people read on this topic or other topics that have really changed your thinking for the better? One day when I retire, I'm going to build a house and I'm going to name it after Seth Godin's seminal work, Purple Cow. So I would read Seth's Purple Cow. I would read Moments by Dan and Chip Heath. I'm a big Art of War guy. 
So if you haven't actually, everyone has a copy of Art of War. Yeah, Sun Tzu. But actually read it. Like for real. Like read it. And you can't like read it like a novel. You got to read it like you would read Proverbs in the Bible. You got to read it like for about a half a page and then think about it. It'll take you a year to read it. But it's it's pretty good, dude. It's it's all right. Um, and then I like reading... I like from a business perspective, I like reading novels. I particularly like reading science fiction novels because those people are always thinking about what's next next. And, you know, they are pretty good about predicting what's next next. And it's kind of fun to be watching that and then position yourself. I mean, I would have never bought cryptocurrency 12 years ago had I not read some people's books. I was like, oh, I get what this is. Okay, let me just throw a couple dollars into this thing and just see what happens. And if I'm uh, you know, crypto billionaire, I'm a crypto, which makes me worth $1.85 if I convert it out. No, not a crypto billionaire. But, you know, I got a couple of things. I was just talking to a guy earlier and, you know, he, he, he knew who I was. And so he wanted to make sure that his cost basis in Bitcoin was lower than mine. And I was like, dude, congratulations. It's awesome. I think we've all... We've all done okay. Well, speaking of that, what about website resources that are sort of accessible that you recommend people to look at for this topic or for just general learning? So for word of mouth marketing, I'm going to actually send you to our website, which is fizzcore.com, F-I-Z-Z-C-O-R-P.com. And the reason I'm going to do that is we have all kinds of links to all kinds of everybody else's stuff. We are the repository for information. And we just do that because we think word of mouth is really interesting. So, and we wrote the website to be just straight up language. There's very little sales stuff. You got to dig for it. Um, so, or you can just Google word of mouth marketing and just jump from there. But if you want, we've got all the science papers stored there. Everybody's work will say, oh, go look at Ed's work or go look at my friend America's Reed's work on identity or go look at this people or that people. Word about marketing is all we do. So it's like somebody, hey, do you want to talk to me about wax for your surfboard? We're those people. We are really expert in one really small, tiny part of the big field, but we're really, really good at it. And if you want to come talk to us and learn about it, we just think it's cool. So we put everything there. So what about a piece of tech? It can be software or hardware that makes you do your job better. Oh, all right. Piece of tech. Oh, I love this. So Microsoft Lens for your phone, it is the best thing to take pictures of whiteboards with. We have used it in the office since COVID started. And, you know, cause I put a, I, we went, uh, we went uh, virtual very early, very early. Cause we have several clients in the medical space. And so we saw was coming down the pike. Some of us used to be doctors in the office. And so we all had a chat. So we basically have, everybody has whiteboards at their house. Uh, and so we take pictures of the whiteboards and we circulate them around. So Microsoft Lens as an app, we use it all the time and love so it. So the micro, uh, Microsoft Lens, it, it takes pictures of the whiteboard and then what translates that into text or something like that? Is that what it does? Oh no, it just takes a really good picture of the whiteboard. Have you ever tried to take a picture with the regular camera? It's weird, it's buzzy, it's whatever, whatever. They have all the filters and all the all the software dig in there. So when you take a picture of a whiteboard and send it to somebody, it looks like the whiteboard and you can see everything. 
Oh, because normal compression of the JPEG, yeah. Because normally if you have really thin writing or elements in a neutral background like white, the standard image compression algorithms will blur the rest. So they must do some sort of specific filter on the compression. Yes. So I wish I understood most of those words you said. I do know what the word compression means. But I have no idea what rasterizing is. But yes, they have defeated the evils of rasterizing and rasterizism. Well, you know what? Um, you may be familiar with this, but there's two types of fonts or ways of displaying you know, digital elements, right? Um, one is called vectors, where you have this series of okay. mathematical path instructions. Example, um, you know, draw a line here, curve at this radius for, for 20% of this length, and then they go this way and then go straight. They turn right 90 degrees for this 30%, and then you know, join back around to the start. And that's like a basic, probably wrong description of what a vector font or a vector element is. And it's a series of points or ratios that stay the same, no matter what, uh, how big or small you blow that shape up into, you always get a crisp, sharp line at the edges. And because the instructions are sent to that screen or that printer okay. are points, they're not an image that gets applied and then sort of stretched. So if I put a triangle on a phone screen, which is quite small, it would have really sharp lines. And if I put that same triangle on a and I sent that to like a billboard company to, you know, print a 30 foot by 15 foot billboard and blew it up like, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times, that line would still be super, super sharp. Um, but if the other way is kind of called rasterizing, which is when you apply like a grid over the top of like an element and like a bingo card, and then you split them to little squares or pixels, like we do digitally when we you know, if you've ever zoomed in really close to a picture and you see those little pixel squares of color. Um, the problem with that is that when you want to resize it, like making it smaller or larger, you can really blur the clarity of that image. Yes. Yes. Very good. So what about a quote or a post or a meme or something around this topic that makes you laugh every single time? Because it's true. Oh, who makes me laugh? Marketing is about selling more stuff to more people more often for more money. If you're not going to do that, go home. So let's just say people really resonate with what we're talking about today. Uh, they want to get in contact with you personally to discuss uh, business or whatever. What's your preferred method of contact? So LinkedIn is great. Just find me on LinkedIn, Ted Wright, Fizz, Atlanta, Georgia. You'll find me. Also, with just a Google search for Ted Wright and Fizz, you'll find me all over the place. Well, I just want to thank you again for your time. I think this was really fun conversation. Enjoy the rest of what's ever left in it that bottle. Morning. It's just very tasty. And I, I want to share another one with you soon. And yes, I will promise to send you um, one of my favorite ones, which I can't repeat on here because it's a small brand and I don't want other people to find out, right? But I'm going to tell you about it off camera, which I suppose is <laughs> word of mouth marketing really in itself, isn't it? I'm ready. So maybe we could start a trend there and, and I'll have to hit up that company afterwards for a bit of a kickback, I think. Okay, cheers. So yeah, thanks again, Ted, for your time. I really appreciate it. John, thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. So there you go, a delve into the world of word of mouth marketing. And remember, please tell at least one other person about this episode or Ted's gonna have my hide. And that's another one of our channel specific episodes. And come to think of it, there's some great parallels with the core product strategy episode I did with Rich Marinov, as well as the two episodes I've done on CX with Matt Watkinson and Catherine Ratowski. So make sure you listen to those because some of the themes in all of these episodes really complement one another really nicely and fleshes out some more detail about some of these areas that Ted touched on. So far, we've done eight of these channel episodes, podcasts, sales promotions, direct mail, social media, outdoor, PR, partnerships, and now word of mouth. At last count, there were 65 I've got a list of 
of in total. So there's lots to work through. And thanks again for your support. Have feedback or want to comment? Give this podcast review on your podcast listening app of choice. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Comment on a post, send me a DM, tell me why you like this or didn't and everything else. Give me some suggestions on a new work topic that we could talk about. A great way to do this is to join my reverse newsletter where I send you an email each month and answer your questions or source information for you instead of the other way around. Go to hybrancy.substack.com to sign up. A dose of John is my Twitter handle or find the official John James on LinkedIn. And if you're into champagne, you can find me on Instagram under the handle Champagne Society. Check out the Hybrancy YouTube channel for snackable highlights and full episodes, which will be neatly categorized by topic via the playlist function. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.